Amen. Thank you, Brother Dalton. How appropriate that that song is. The next several weeks, we're looking at Jesus as he goes to the cross and the events surrounding the cross. Uh, In the coming weeks, I'm going to be talking about the place of the skull, where Jesus was crucified. I'll be speaking about the last words of Jesus from the cross. We'll talk about the side of Jesus, how it was pierced in the blood blood and water that flowed out. We will discuss uh, the men who took Jesus down from the cross. Then we have a sermon, a course on the resurrection once again. So we're going to be talking about all these events that come down to the end of Christ's life. I was thinking about all those folks that are on vacation today, and I, I, I think next year there will be a sign-up sheet. And if you're going to take a vacation, you have to check with us first so everybody doesn't leave at the same time. So be looking for that next year if you would. All right, open your Bibles now, please, to John chapter 19. If you please find the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. We're still thinking about these hours leading up to the death of Christ on the cross. We've seen Jesus as he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. We watched him as he was unjustly accused and taken before Jewish authorities. We followed Jesus into another courtroom as he stood before Pilate. And there Pilate pronounced a verdict where he said, I find no fault in him. And so he was found innocent of all charges against him. Last week I preached about the sacred head of Christ that was wounded with that crown of thorns. And all of these actions that we're talking about lead up to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus is going to the cross. And one thing that we need to understand very clearly about the cross is this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. Before Adam ever sinned in the garden, God knew exactly what would happen, and he knew that his son would have to come into this world and to die for sin. But as we see all of these actions unfolding, the different things that surround the cross, we look at the people that are involved, and every person in this story acts according to the dictates of his heart. Not one single person was coerced into anything that they did. And yet God, being the great God, worked all of this out according to his plan and his purpose. Now, as we think about the perfect son of God as he has to go to the cross, we wonder how it is that those shouts and cheers for Jesus that earlier in the week, while the people were shouting and cheering as he came into Jerusalem, how does that so quickly change? How is it that now he comes down and now he's going to be cursed by the people, they say, to crucify him? Why does that happen that way? Well, curiously, we find it's the same phenomenon that's happening today. There are people who got caught up in a mob mentality and they were sucked into this raging inferno of hate and destruction. And one thing that we find out about people, that people will do things in a mob or in a crowd that they otherwise would not do. I mean, there are few people that would, would openly just come up to somebody and curse them to their face. Most people won't do that. Most people would not boo another person as they walked into a room. But you put those same people into a crowd situation and things change. And they'll start to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Well, in this story, we find that the, the reaction to Jesus and what he was about to do turns very suddenly... And in this story, Jesus is not only the victim of mob violence, but we also find that Pilate is the victim of mob influence. And today I could preach to you about Pilate, and I could explain to you how uh, they tell us that historically Pilate was a very weak person, and he was prone to fall into this, this kind of pressure. 
But I don't want the sermon today to be about Pilate. I want to talk about you, and I want to talk about how you may respond to the pressures of a crowd. I'd like you to stand, please, as we read God's Word today. We're going to begin with the first verse of John chapter 19, and we're going to read this and see how this whole thing develops so we get into this crowd mentality. Chapter 19, verse number 1, it says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man." When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, and these are the last words that Jesus speaks before he goes to the cross. Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin." And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whoso maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now that is a totally amazing statement because here are these disciples, or rather these Jews who hate, who hate uh, Gentile people. They're looking for the coming Messiah king, and here they say, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he them, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word today. Help us, Lord, as we look at this scripture this morning, that we might understand the difference between what is right and what is wrong, what's moral, what's immoral. And help us, Lord, that in our lives we will make the right choices according to your word and not according to how the world wants us to go. Bless in this message today. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is a reaction of the mob that we see in this scripture this morning. And sometimes an unruly crowd can influence you to do things that are wrong and to take the wrong kind of actions. There are four different attitudes that we find in the scripture here today that I'd like to talk to you about. I want to discuss with you about surrendering what is right according to what the crowd thinks. 
Now, the first attitude that I'd like to talk about today is the crowd's morality. Think about the crowd's morality, and I think that the best way that we could describe this today is to call this just a convoluted sense of morality. Because here we see that there is a feeling that there are some things that may not be right, some things that I ought not to do, but suddenly these things become right, and it's all right to do them if I'm in a crowd. Now, perhaps you didn't know, but there is an area of behavioral psychology that deals with this very thing. What happens in a crowd or in, with, with mob action and morality or the sense of what is right and wrong, morality can simply be turned upside down. It can be totally reversed when you see these things through the eyes of a crowd. Now, here is the problem when you're with the crowd. What seems wrong seems right. Wrong things seem right when you get into a crowd. Now, on an individual basis, if we look at this story, and and if we were to think of this about being one-on-one encounters, people facing Jesus personally and speaking to him, probably the outcome of this would not have been as harsh as it was. But when the people got with the crowd, when the individuals of this crowd get together, then they act in a much different way. Now, both Jesus and these people in the crowd were standing in front of Pilate on this particular day, and Pilate had to make a choice. Am I going to go with the mob? Am I going to go with the crowd? Am I going to choose the truth? Will I choose what is right, or will I choose what is popular? Or am I going to go according to all of the facts in this case? And, of course, we know that Pilate made the wrong choice. Now, I want you to think about you and me today. You and I face what we could call a mob mentality every single day. And we are influenced by the crowd, and the crowd can make things that are wrong seem right, and things that are right seem wrong. You probably remember the incident back in 1991, the Rodney King incident. Do you remember that? In 1991, LAPD officers arrested Rodney King. He was a paroled convicted felon. He was driving drunk, possibly under the influence of PCP. Someone videotaped the arrest when they arrested him, and they turned that tape over to a television news station. And what they saw in this film was what appeared to be a very violent arrest. They deemed that it was too violent, and so they charged the arresting officers. They said that they made a racially motivated arrest. Those officers were tried. They were brought before the court, and Three of those officers were uh, acquitted of the charges, and that happened in 1992. And when they were acquitted of those charges, that sparked a riot in L.A. There was a mob that went through the streets of Los Angeles. They were destroying property. They were looted. They set fires. And all of you probably remember one victim in that incident, a man by the name of Reginald Denny. You remember him? He was a man who was just driving through the area, and they came and they drug him out of his out of his truck, and they began to beat him. And the television stations caught that on tape as well. They showed us where they they were standing over this man. They beat him in the head with a hammer. They left him there for dead. They did a victory dance over his unconscious body, and they caught all of that on television. In this incident, there were six days of rioting. There was $1 billion done in property damages. 55 people were killed. 2,300 people were injured. 3,600 fires were started. At one point, the the L.A. uh, Fire Department was responding to three fire calls per minute. And do you know when they sent those firemen out there to fight those fires that they became the target of snipers? 
That was mob behavior. And I want to tell you something, folks. It didn't happen 2,000 years ago. It happened just 15 years ago in our very own state. Now, before we get too critical of that crowd that wanted to crucify Jesus and called out to him about, against him, we need to realize that we haven't really come all that far, have we? We haven't come that far. And let me tell you what this does. This, this completely shoots holes in the theory that if you clean man up a little bit, if you give him a better environment, give him a better education, make him look nice and pretty, that he still goes back to the same old dictates of his wicked heart. Jeremiah was correct 2,600 years ago when he said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? The only difference between then and now, 2,000 years ago when they crucified Jesus and this very day, the only difference between people then and now is that we have become so technologically advanced that now we can videotape our wickedness. That's the only difference between then and now. There are people out there still today. There is a mob out there. There's a crowd out there. And they're living by a different moral standard. And they're going to try to influence you against Jesus. Now, the morality of the crowd is wrong, but they can make what is wrong seem right. That's the crowd's morality. But we also see another attitude, and this is the crowd's temptation. Pilate is here staring this mob in the eye, and the eye they are, they are clamoring for Jesus' death. The crowd says, he deserves to die. But we know that Pilate has already made the correct judicial decision. He said, I find in him no fault at all. If you'll look back at the 18th chapter, verse number 38, here is Pilate's original verdict. Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. So Pilate has already given the correct verdict. Pilate knows how justice should be served, but he still faced a bomb. Out there, there are these people that don't want him to do this. They don't want him to let him go. And so Pilate was tempted, and he gave in to the unruly mob, and he consented to the crucifixion. Now, that was Pilate's decision to make. He stands or he falls on that decision. But, but let's not think about Pilate today. I want you to think about every one of us. Every one of you stand between the mob and Jesus every single day. And the greatest temptation that you will face is to join them. Write that down this morning. The greatest temptation that you will face is to join them. The greatest temptation from the crowd is to join them in their opposition to Jesus and this whole thing that we describe today of living the Christian life. The mob, the crowd, they'll try to get you to make the wrong choices. And you know, this is really a huge question for our teenagers today. It's a terrible thing that they face. Are the teenagers, are you going to join the crowd or are you going to do what's right? And there are moral choices that have to be made every single day. I really feel sorry for our teenagers. We just mentioned the young man just a moment ago in high school in jail. But, but I, I really feel sorry for our teenagers because they face things that I never even thought of when I was going to school. There are temptations that are placed in front of them every single day, and there is a choice to be made. Are they going to fit in with the crowd and give in to the temptation, or are they going to do what's right? But you know something? We're not just talking about teenagers today. We're also talking about businessmen, people in the workplace. 
We're also facing moral choices. We have to make decisions. And, and you'll find this to be true where you work, that sometimes things that are immoral, things that are unethical, things that are often illegal will be part of your choices. And you know what people are doing today? They say, well, well, why not go along with it? Why not do it? I mean, what's the harm in it? Nobody seems to be getting caught. What's the harm in doing that? And the question is, for all of us as Christian people, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you follow the crowd's temptation or do you do what's right? Now, I want you to notice something in verse number 11. Jesus makes a statement here that you could call the last sermon that Jesus preached before he went to the cross. It takes me 35 or 40 minutes to preach a sermon. But Jesus could preach a sermon in just one sentence. And what he says keeps us wondering and pondering those things for centuries. Now here is Jesus. The crown of thorns has already been placed upon his head. He's beaten almost to where he is beyond recognition. You can't even tell he's a man any longer. Seriously beaten. And through those swollen and bloody lips, Jesus has the moxie to make this statement. He says, Thou couldst have no power against me at all, except it were given thee from above. Can you imagine Jesus making that statement? Here he is, beaten to a pulp. Looks like there's no way that he's the winner in this thing. He's beaten, seriously beaten to a pulp. And, and he looks up there at that Roman governor of Judea, the one who represents the power and the might of the Roman Empire. And he says, you don't have any power against me at all unless God gives it to you. But listen to this next phrase that he makes because this is very important for us. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. I want you to notice two important statements about that phrase. Two important facts about it. Number one is that God gives you the power to choose. There are moral choices that are made every day, and God has given you the ability to choose the right path or to take the wrong path. I want you to understand something, though, what I'm talking about here. I'm not speaking about the ability to choose certain paths that will make you righteous in salvation. You actually don't even have that ability. That comes from God. You'll never make the right kind of choices in that area. You'll never make a righteous choice until God enlightens your eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right here, I'm talking about moral choices. And I'm saying to you that God does not force your obedience. Now, he can certainly make you wish that you had obeyed him, but God's not going to force you. You have a choice to do what is right or what is wrong. The second fact about this is that your choice determines your guilt or innocence. Pilate suffered for this choice, but we notice here he's not the one that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about Pilate's sin. He says, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Who's Jesus talking about? I think he's talking about the Jews. He's speaking about Caiaphas, the high priest. He's talking about Judas, who was one of the disciples. He was speaking of those who should have known that he was the Messiah. They should have recognized him when he came. Now, Pilate was a Roman. He was guilty. He sinned in what he did. But Pilate did not have the greatest sin here. The greatest sin... His sin was not the magnitude of these other people. The greatest sin is committed by people like Judas, people that were close to Christ, people who should have known him. The greater sin is the high priest, the one who represents all the priests and the scribes and doctors of God's law. They should have recognized the Messiah. Now, here's something that I want you to understand very clearly today, that when you walk through these doors over here at 11 a.m. this morning, that suddenly... 
You became more accountable for what takes place here. You are more accountable. Now, you might ask me a question today. Well, what's God going to do with all these heathens over there in Brazil, in the jungles of Africa, people that are practicing voodoo, worshiping heathen gods, employed right in the very acts of the devil himself? What's God going to do with all those people that haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to tell you something. Stop worrying about them. Don't worry about them right now. I want this to be about you. Think about you. Because when you came through the doors at 11 a.m., suddenly you you become more responsible for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's being preached. And if you leave here today in rejection of who Jesus is, not trusting in him, then you have gone along with the crowd's morality that's against Jesus Christ. Don't worry about what God's going to do with others. You need to think about yourself right now. Are you going to give in to the crowd's temptation and reject Jesus Christ? Or are you going to trust him? Are you going to believe him? Are you going to do what God says? Now let's go on because we have another thing to talk about. Let's talk about a moment, the crowd's resistance. The crowd wants you to follow them. Now, Pilate tried to resist the mob's action. And actually, John records that on three occasions, he said, I can find no fault in him. I don't find any fault. In verse number 12, Pilate was determined that he would release Jesus. He knew it was a mistake. I mean, if he, if he allowed Jesus to be crucified, he knew it was mistake, a mistake. But let's look and see how the crowd turned here. Look at verse number 12. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Who maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Do you see what the crowd's doing here? They stop attacking Jesus. Now they turn their attention to Pilate. And they say, Pilate, if you let him go, if you release him, that means that you are no friend of Caesar. James Montgomery Boyce writes on this verse, he said, Pilate failed to do the right, not because he did not know what was right, he did, but because he feared to have it suggested that he was not Caesar's friend. What irony! He wanted so much to be a friend of Caesar, but he was not Caesar's friend. He barely knew Caesar. And what is more significant, Caesar was not his friend at all. Pilate had no friends anywhere. And yet there stood before him one who, although he was God Almighty and the King of Kings, nevertheless he stooped to be the friend of sinners. Now here we find Pilate. In some ways, you almost have to feel pity for Pilate. He has no friends. He's gripped with fear. He's actually afraid of Jesus. There in verse number 8, we read it. He said he heard that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and the Bible says he was more afraid. You remember, he's already afraid. What about that dream that his wife had? Remember that? His wife had a dream about Jesus, and she said, have nothing to do with that just man. So Pilate's already afraid here. But Jesus is not all that he's afraid of. Because he's also afraid of the people. He's afraid of this crowd. He knew how this mob could turn. And though he despised the Jewish people, he never wanted to stoop down to do them any favors. He hated them. And yet he knew knew what could happen. He knew what the mob could do here. Pilate also feared Caesar. The crowd said, if you release him, you're no friend of Caesar. And that was a threat. What they were saying is, "If if you release him then we're going to tell on you. We're going to tell Caesar what you've done, that here's a man who claims to be a king, and you've let him go. You've released him. Well, Caesar was certainly someone to be feared. 
Tiberius Caesar was well known for how he treated his enemies. And so the mishandling of this case would mean that Pilate would come into disfavor with the king. So here is Pilate, and his problem is he fears man, he fears Caesar, he fears the crowd, but he doesn't really fear God in the way that he ought to. He was not really as much afraid of Jesus as he was about what the crowd and everybody else would do. But I want you to hear what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. He said, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, do you see what's happening here? The crowd turns from their resistance of Jesus to resistance against Pilate. And now Pilate becomes the focus of their attack. Now, here's the point that I want to make about about this whole thing, the crowd's resistance. You try to resist the crowd, try it, and they will attack you. When you decide that you're going to stand for Jesus, you're going to resist the crowd, they will attack you. Now, teenagers, I want to tell you something. I promise you this. You mark it down. When you decide that you're going to serve Jesus, the other teenagers, they're going to say, you are a chicken. You're some kind of religious fanatic. And when they wave those, that booze and the drugs in front of you, if you choose against them, they're going to attack you. But you have to make a decision. Are you going to choose right or are you going to choose wrong? Are you going to choose the crowd or are you going to choose Jesus? And I want to tell you something right now. It takes more of a man or a woman to stand up for Jesus than it does to join into the crowd that mocked him and beat him on that day. It takes more of a person to do that. Now, Christian employees, this is true for you as well. You face the same thing. If you decide that you're going to stand up for Jesus where you work, if you're going to be a witness and a testimony where you work, you'll find out that the people there will attack you. The consequences can be tough. But the choice is very simple for you. Join them just to get along, just to stay in favor with the crowd, or choose Jesus and stand up for him. Let me give you a moment, uh, just a moment here for a moment, an example of the crowd's resistance. Some of you may watch talk shows on television. And I just want to tell you right now that talk shows are nothing but the depravity of man on display. They take the worst degenerates that they can possibly find and they put them up in front of the people and they try to make what they do seem normal. I don't care who it is. Take Oprah Winfrey and Ellen DeGeneres and Jerry Springer. The whole bunch of them is not worth letting your dog watch. You'll corrupt your dog if you let them sit in front of the TV. (laughs) But I heard this uh, about the Oprah Winfrey show when I was reading about this. This is something that happened in the 1980s, actually. And things haven't changed because we all know that Oprah Winfrey uh, supports the gay and lesbian agenda. There was a Christian woman that stood up on her show and asked a question. She said, you are a Christian, and I don't understand how you could support something that the Bible says is so clearly wrong. Now, the audience reaction is the key here. Oprah said, the God that I serve doesn't care if you're born black or white or Asian. He doesn't care if you're born mentally retarded. He doesn't care if you are a homosexual. So said the great theologian Oprah Winfrey. And the crowd began to cheer. And what did they do? They shouted down the woman who stood up for what was right. Now, folks, here's the problem. The world has its manufactured God. The world has its God that they want to serve that matches their standard of morality. 
The God that they want to serve is one they've made up in their own minds and they want him to be just like them. And if he doesn't match what they want him to be, then he can't be the God that they serve. But I want to tell you something. There is a God in heaven. There is a true God. He is righteous and he is just. He is the God of this Bible. And when you take sides against him, write it down. People will attack you. They don't like you standing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you do that, you've all heard it. You've heard it, haven't you? They say, well, you are narrow-minded. You're a bigot when you stand up for the truth. And what did Jesus say about that? Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. If you're narrow, praise God for that. Praise God for that. The crowd is going to attack you. They will resist you whenever you stand up for truth, justice, and the godly way. They will attack you. But there's yet one more way and another attitude of the crowd, and this is the crowd's consent. Now, I want you to make note of this right now, that when you consent to the crowd, it makes you a part of their behavior. Whenever you consent to the crowd, it makes you a part of their behavior. See, you become a part of the mob even when you quietly consent. Pilate said, or rather, Pilate never said, you won't read this in the Scripture, that Pilate said, okay, you must be right. He is guilty after all. He is guilty. So you take him and you crucify him because Jesus is guilty. Pilate never said that. In fact, listen to what happens here in Matthew 27, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail, when he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. So the crowd is boisterous. They're insistent that Jesus be crucified. Pilate sees here things are getting out of hand. He'd already tried that trick with Barabbas. You remember that? He tried the trick with Barabbas, but he underestimated their true hatred of Jesus. So he thought, you know, if I tell them you've got a choice between Barabbas or Jesus, surely they're going to take Jesus because Barabbas is a killer. He's a murderer. He's a seditionist. He's been put in jail because he's a wicked person. Surely they're going to choose Barabbas. But they didn't. They wanted Jesus to be crucified, so he underestimated that. So Pilate's stuck. What's he going to do? What can he do here? Well, he decides, well, this is what the mob wants and what the crowd wants. I can't go against them. And so what Pilate did, he took out a basin of water, and before the people, he began to wash his hands with that water to say that I am innocent of what's going on here. But was Pilate innocent? Did he succeed in separating himself from the crucifixion? He said, it's not my fault. But when he released Jesus to them, whose side was he taking? Was he taking Jesus' side? Well, certainly not. He's taking the side of the crowd. So he gave in to the mob. Now, he did everything that he could to absolve himself of this sin, but washing his hands with that water could never wash away the sin of him consenting and letting the crowd go ahead and crucify Jesus. It didn't work. And you know how I know that it didn't work? You know how I know that... Pilate could not disassociate himself from that in such a way that we don't consider that Pilate is guilty. Let me tell you one way I know. That's because 
All across America today, there are churches that use the Apostles' Creed. How many of you have ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? In many churches, they use the Apostles' Creed, and thousands upon thousands of churches today are reciting the Apostles' Creed. You know how it begins? It begins this way. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and listen to this, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Was Pilate successful in distancing himself from the crucifixion? Absolutely not. His quiet consent made him a part of that mob. Now, he never overtly consented to the crucifixion of Christ. He never said, go ahead and do it because he's guilty. He just went along with it, and so he became a part of their behavior. And I want to tell you something today, that when you do not stand up for Jesus, when you keep your mouth shut, when the crowd goes against him, you have become a part of their behavior. When you consent to the crowd, you are also guilty for what the crowd does. Maybe you remember this famous quote from the pastor, from Pastor Martin Nymoller. He was an anti-Nazi activist in World War II. And years after the war, he was speaking at Columbia University and he made this statement. He said, in Germany, they first came for the communists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. They came for the trade unionists and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. They came for the Catholics and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time, there was no one left to speak up. Do you see what happens when you give quiet consent? Now, there are some of you today that you need to turn from your bad choices, and you need to trust in Jesus. You may not be an activist against Christ. You know, I've never, I don't think that I've ever met, maybe possibly, I'm not sure. Did I ever meet anybody who was an activist against Christ? Personally, I don't think that I have. I don't think I know a single person who actively campaigns against Jesus Christ. You probably don't know any either. Maybe one or two, possibly. Nobody actively campaigns against Jesus. But do you understand something? That when you stand with the crowd and you don't stand for Jesus, you might as well be standing there with a hammer in your hand and the nails in this hand, ready to nail him to that cross. Because you are a part of their actions. You are accountable for what you do. Now... If you stand up or don't stand up for him, you are guilty of crucifying Jesus Christ. Now, here is the thing. You've heard the gospel today. And just like Jesus said, as he said right here in our scripture, you have the greater sin here because now you know. You have to make the right decision. Now you know. Is it going to be the crowd or is it going to be Jesus? Now, there are others of you here today that I know by your profession, you say that you're saved And you face these moral questions every single day. The crowd tempts you to do one thing. Where you work, they tempt you to do this thing or that thing. And the thing that they want you to do is really not to stand up for the Lord. They want you to throw in with them. And many of you Christian people, good members of Berean Baptist Church, you throw in with the crowd every single day and you become a part of them. And by your quiet consent, just going along with them, You are responsible for what happened to Jesus. 
You need to make the right decision today. I encourage you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, you need to trust him. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you need to stand up for him. Don't be a part of the unbelieving crowd who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Be be a follower and one who worships Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. I ask you, Lord, that you might lay it upon our hearts a real burden that we would stand for you. There's so many Christians across America who have consented to the crowd. They've just gone along with whatever anybody wants to do and what it's caused the sad situation that we have in our government, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. There are problems all around us because Christians never stood up, never threw in where they should with the Lord Jesus Christ and said, I will stand for him. I ask you, Lord, you'd speak to some Christian's heart today. Would they confess that sin and come to you and say, Lord, I will stand up for you. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll be there when you need me. I'll do what you want. And then, Lord, I pray for some person here today who may not be a Christian. They haven't trusted you. Help them to understand that they are standing there with a hammer and nails in their hands every single day that they go on in rejection of Jesus. Lay it upon their hearts today, Lord, to come to you in faith, believing that Jesus Christ is their Savior. Bless in this time of invitation, and we give you the praise for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you please stand as we sing?